I say we as human beings, because I think that's it. It's like we as a planet, it's no longer we as a nation or my tribe. No, th- those days are over. Like uh, the complexity now is it's not that we're saving the planet. We need to kind of redirect ourselves so we can survive on the planet. I feel like there's an elephant in the room here regarding the emergence of large language model AI stuff lately and the importance at this crucial point of our development to align AI with human interests. And I can think of no better way to do this than by raising our children better. Greetings, future fossils, and welcome to episode 210 of the podcast that explores our place in time. Today, I welcome back one of Future Fossil's first guests, filmmaker Mitch Schultz, whose 2012 documentary DMT, The Spirit Molecule, based on the book by Rick Strassman, was then and is now still one of the greatest psychedelic documentaries of all time. I met Mitch at the DMT remix party at South by Southwest in 2012, where I got to play music and ended up also meeting most of the crew that became my close cohort in Austin, Texas. And in that group was also our other guest for this episode, Shanta Stevens, who has teamed up with Mitch in Unify Studio to produce The Conscious Molecule, a follow-up documentary and transmedia project exploring information theory, quantum physics, the science and philosophy of consciousness, 5-MeO-DMT, and so much more that I honestly don't even know where to start with this project. It is one of the most ambitious media endeavors I have ever heard of. And I am delighted and honored that I got to help in a small way by helping Mitch and Shanta hack into the 2023 Psychedelic Science Conference so that they could secure a bunch of excellent interviews. I was privileged enough to hear them conducting in our hotel room. These are two gentlemen I regard as brothers on the path, and I cannot overstate the importance of their work in capturing the oral histories and synthesizing the complex philosophical overlays of what our late friend James Orock identified as the third Western psychedelic revolution. In the conversation that follows, which we recorded on July 21st, the day that both Barbie and Oppenheimer portentiously hit theaters, we discuss information bombs, the transformations of consciousness wrought by digital media, the work of psychonauts in cyberculture, and so, so much more. But first, I want to remind you that this is a listener-supported program and that it is purely through your contributions that I am able to continue in all of the research, recording, and supplementary media production that makes Future Fossils much more than a podcast, but the seed crystal around which a remarkable online community has self-organized 
and the vessel through which my own transmedia explorations all find their space for incubation and a channel into the world. This show and everything I do is a labor of love and my answer to the question of how the decisions that I make on a daily basis are shaped by reckoning with the presence of the unborn generations to which I and we are ancestors. I want to give a special thanks to new Patreon and Substack supporters, Ondine Norman, Joshua Sachs, Rob Talon, and Gilberto Vendramin. And to thank everyone else whose continued financial support, as well as your ratings and reviews and recommendations of this podcast, motivate me to continue in what is, most of the time, rather lonely work. But I expect things to be changing here soon. I just put out a call inviting other members of the Future Fossils community to step up as stakeholders. So you can expect over the next few months a stream of experiments with new guest co-hosts and new episode formats and hopefully a return to inspiring short-form synesthetic videos and a lot more. I finally finished the album I've been working on for 15 years and will very soon be sharing it with Patreon and Substack supporters in a private YouTube playlist featuring 44 minutes of utterly psychedelic AI music videos that carry you through a kind of contemplative dreamscape. There are only a few creative projects I've spent more time on than this album and feel better about. Really, the only one is my relationship with my wife, Nicole Taylor, with whom I celebrate today, September 20th, 19 years since our first date. I love you, Nikki, but I also can't share you in the way that I can share this music. <laughs> so... If you would like to be in the pre-release audience for this album while I keep it under wraps and submit it to major record labels I've dreamed of working with since I was a teenager, patreon.com slash michaelgarfield or michaelgarfield.substack.com. Thank you, thank you, thank you for helping me make art and still somehow feed my kids. And with that, I am so very happy to share this conversation with two of the wildest, most enthusiastic and provocative, thoughtful, creative, and caring people that I know, Mitch Schultz and Shanta Stevens. The Kickstarter for The Conscious Molecule will go live any day now. So find the links to their social media accounts in the show notes and subscribe to them all and of course if you happen to have very deep pockets fund their movie i believe that this is work of true impact and import at a time when all of us are tripping balls on the internet and can benefit from just this kind of trickster psychopomp enjoy and thanks for listening
really it's about putting it into a human lens, right? And saying, look, this is just part of this whole bigger picture, but pulling it back with that interface, essentially, and mapping to kind of these informational paradigms or informational spheres that humans have, not just from our DNA, but the social structures, the other information, the art throughout time and history, all of that, that mapping that is cut not just as a self tool, but also as a, an interface for this potential uh, AGI, right? Because of everyone's fear, it becomes this kind of like, here is my human interface from these different kind of systems of, of spheres of information. How is it interacting? And you have complete control over that. We're creating that interface directly from the biological up to these, again, the metaverse, if you will, but it's even deeper than that. Considerably. Shanta, Shanta yeah. <laughs> well, one of the things that that I have been getting through my research this morning uh, is this, this sort of recognition that the accelerationist point we are, we're inhabiting right now in, in like the media consumption cycle where people's like information is just overloading people and they don't know how to, how to like properly prioritize or use critical thinking or, you know, easily propagandized and disinformed, misinformed is it's a cycle that keeps people in, in a, a, fight or flight kind of, you know, fear-based mindset where like all these unintegrated shadows come up. And, and so we have like, you know, a, a great deal of them, particularly in the West here about, you know, like the, the lack of, of reciprocation that has transpired for thousands of years, you know, as this Leviathan has marched across the earth and, and it's time for some kind of accounting to be done. And, you know, we've, we've seen this like before, but we, we have an opportunity now to do this if people will take the time. And that's like the big question is like time is money. And, you know, de there's a lot of desperation as people, you know, are again in the cycle of, of, you know, fight or flight or freeze and they, they don't know where to start. So how, you know, like we could, we could talk about this sort of thing all day, but I guess my, my biggest question for y'all is, is like, how do we make this fun or people aren't, you know, like how, or how do we move beyond fun and find some other way to motivate people? And so I keep seeing it more as play or yeah. in kind of in encouraging play. And that can be done through a lot of different design techniques, right? Whether there's two dimensional screen or physical space go on and on, right? How, how can we do that kind of with ideas across these different scales? Let's take the first DMT film, for instance, right? It was like, all right, we want to make this interesting doc about this crazy molecule and scientific experiment. Thought it was going to be one way. It turned into a much different film. The idea was to literally change the dialogue out there in, in the world about psychedelics. And so that, again, touching one of these information spheres, but through this lens, for instance, and it could be a number of different things, whatever you do in the world, how do we, in all of our interactions, encourage this play? Um, it's not a demanding thing. It's not an expectation thing. 
um, because that helps process, I think, the, the overload of information that, that we're not aware of. For one, we don't, we can't process our information. We're seeing that add up collectively, I don't know, from individually all the way up, right? And, and that's got to come to a stop. But then there's also, yeah, this new technology that's layering this constant feed of everything and, and most of it kind of feeding your worst fears along the way. Um, so of course that's going to drive psychosis. Of course that's going to yeah. be driving it. So shifting people as much as we can away from that. I know that's been part of the talk and looking at what social media has done in a number of different arenas, but every, every, again, every aspect of that uh, sense of self and then how our spheres are operating in this big pinball machine <laughs> called life with other spheres and other people and their spheres. And I guess I'm just trying to kind of put a physical flow kind of thing around it, but it, but it's a resonance in and out of these balls of being. So if I can try and wrangle all of what both of you just said into like a proper prompt with which to launch this conversation, then here's what I'm I got. glad we have to work towards a prompt. That's part of the human interface with this next layer. Right. Right. Uh, generative natural, AI. Anyway. natural language processing. <laughs> so, okay. Computer. No, <laughs> what I, you know, what I, what I hear swirling around in, you know, the last few minutes here is okay. It's Barbenheimer day. We're talking about, you know, on the one hand, this, economic and cultural innovation, the toy, right? On the other hand, this you know, militaristic innovation of the bomb. And the thing that's missing, it's like, it never occurred to me that Barbie was the Trinity here. I've always thought of a dyad, but it's well reported that the bomb and LSD were discovered at the same time. And so you have- Computers you know yeah and computers and like the whole mix of all of this stuff is like that's why i love blade runner you know and i love like looking at you know these kinds of you know jurassic park these these films that explore the intersection of amusement and war wait and... jurassic park i've never heard that from you don't worry about it it's... okay just checking in <laughs> also toys Right. Also toys, you know. Um, <laughs> right, right. Good yeah. Point. So there's, yeah, there is this thing of like plastic, right? Plastic toys, soft power. Plastic. You know, that's, yeah, it's, it's fantastic. So at any rate, the, God, if folks can keep up with this, I commend you and want to hear from you in Discord server because this, this still feels like we're playing insider baseball. But like, this is, this is the point, you know, the, the father, the son, and the Holy Ghost, right? Uh, the son is. Mother, the father, the baby. Right, right. The maybe the son is LSD Albert Hoffman's problem child, you know, or like maybe you know we've got the bomb is the father, and then Barbie is the Holy Ghost, or you know the Virgin Mother, right? Okay, whatever. Point the is, Virgin Mother. Yes, she has no parts, you know. Hmm. But so at any rate, Asteroid City is the baby. That's Couldn't kid also then be by that by that rationale also be the Virgin Mother or yes. Virgin? Yes. But, okay. All right, Just but checking. like I gotta get it on the rails before we can keep it on the rails. So you know, because we are here to discuss, you know, what is being called, workshopped as the conscious molecule, and this you know transmedia project, this follow up to DMT, the spirit molecule, that's at least in part, you know, chronicling this renaissance in psychotechnologies and in the philosophy and science of consciousness 
as it appears, you know, in a number of different domains. Like, I feel like this conversation is continuous with a number of other conversations I've had lately. And you both just kind of made this point that the exoteric explosion of the bomb being met by the esoteric explosion of the second American psychedelic renaissance is a, a kind of playbook or, you know, a, a frame through which we can understand how the children of those projects, which are, you know, artificial intelligence as, you know, a mature computational platform and, you know, this, this whole new wave of, of psychedelics that have become popularized in the last few years, principally NNDMT and 5-MeO-DMT, as far as I feel this conversation is concerned, are leading to a kind of philosophical and technological and cultural uh, turning in the same way that we saw about 80 years ago, or at least, you know, we're on the cusp of this kind of thing. And so, you know, it's the next wave of that complexity, I think, right? right. That like spiral dynamic (laughs) uprising. Right. Yeah. And Graves kind of nailed that. And those like those, it's not that we moved completely, right? It's like these nested layers, right? These constantly influencing again, one another in such dynamic ways. But yeah, similar thing. Another major turning point, Graves would even call it a momentous leap for mankind or humankind because it was, he thinks that next, this next, well, maybe not even this one, but even the one following, you know, could be a transition to another species almost. Yeah, I guess that's the, is that what's coming, you know, as we're, this emergent technology is coming out of us that we're dreaming up and putting our worst fears and also our greatest imaginations into what does that generate uh, we got to be careful what we're wishing for and not just one genie but a lot of genies come out of the bottle really quick and putting one back in as we know is challenging <laughs> i saw ghostbusters right 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 well yeah there you go <laughs> the so, ghost and- in the machines I feel like there's an elephant in the room here regarding the emergence of large language model AI stuff lately and the importance at this crucial point of our development to align AI with human interests. And I can think of no better way to do this than by raising our children better. We can do better. We can. And this is sort of the, the, uh, the opportunity to 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 show the the ethical ways of evolving cooperation that are mutually beneficial, synergetic ways that human humankind has has enabled us or are sort of you know along with the the competitive strain of evolution. There's also this this cooperative element that had you know enabled unicellular creatures to form colonies and creep away from the the hot geysers three and a half billion years ago when the stromatolites formed and you know like this sort of it's 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 an opportunity for us to to celebrate reciprocity and that brings good fortune if you will and and i you know like it's at the same time, you can't be a Pollyanna about it. Like there, humans are also predators, and like you, you can't, you know, you can't be too idealistic. You have to be realistic a- about people. You know, the predators, the parasites, the neighbors. You know, might 
not have your best interests at heart. And so um, we now have the ability to like outlines and see this dynamic information in real time, right? For the first time in human history, why we can start seeing our flows and what you we're trust doing your we're starting to become aware of that literally as, as an entire species. A lot of people see it, but there are a lot of people that don't still see it until they're kind of forced to, or have a certain level of complexity. And, and that's part of, I think what's going on, but yeah, what happens then when we get the wheel to the bus, the cosmic bus as we're driving it and we're, you know, switching our DNA and we're literally now driving that evolutionary process. You know, we want to do that as knowingly as possible and make sure that we have a permit potentially or be able to kind of take it for a test spin around the cosmic parking lot or so um, so who do we trust is what I'm is what I'm getting at. And because there's a lot of data streams, but not all of them are quite as accurate as one another. Right. So I think part of it is that we have to kind of have, we have to encourage people, organizations, governments, all of it to be able to kind of put their streams out there. And we as individuals, but also as collectives start to kind of decipher what those are. And they're probably going to be different for different organizations, right? They are. Um, I so, do think that the more complexity and the more awareness that we have of those systems, the better chances we have of survival. So these life-affirming ways of, I think that that plays, and we see that trend in humanity, all these different layers, we are getting, quote unquote, better and, and less violent. And we are at a point where we have to dump some stuff. New complexity is coming out of us. Is this so, we you speak of, Kimosabe? I say we as human beings, because I think that's it. It's like we as a planet. It's no longer we as a nation or my tribe. No, th those days are over. I got the complexity now is it's not that we're saving the planet. We need to kind of redirect ourselves so we can survive on the planet. So it's, Jeremy it's Rifkin talks about the empathic civilization and like being like reaching out. And, and I would, I would suggest like that there is a pattern for this in human history of like all the way back to like through, through the legal system to Cicero and, you know, fathers of philosophical thought that suggest stepping into someone else's shoes and seeing things from their perspective is a I beneficial think that's thing actually happening on a species level like on a major way people that's the kind of level that's actually we're actually forming that we can see that through the evolution of our brain right in our nervous system but people are starting to get that right that's why there's so much oh my god i feel the whole world shit happening um, it's because we're starting to say, oh, wow, I do this here. That affects so-and-so over here, whether that's- I would I'm say it's not products. happening enough. And that's I, why I, we hit this point. I understand. I think it's, but the reason we've hit this point is because it's not happening enough. I think from that point, we're getting forced into a new kind of like trajectory because we haven't been paying attention. And that's kind of what we're being driven to is a, a new awareness, right? We're being forced to see the complexity in this and think about how we're moving around the world and understand that we're making a difference, not just on other humans, but the entire planet, the entire life system of the planet. And if we don't learn how to improve basic life conditions for, for as much as we can, not just humans, then there's a good chance that we, we could see a major demise. So can I ask for, for us to... to uh, we, can. we can do this. We can do this. Sorry, I said there are the rails over there on the hill. I see can, them. Can I ask for us to resolve this point and allow me to introduce a, a 
thought experiment? Please, yes, yeah, yeah. Is there road passes? There, okay, so one of the things that's come across my desk in the in the past few days is this question of if we're trying to communicate with aliens on other planets, which we are, quite frankly, you know, xenobiologists are searching for signals and we have a lot of patterns that we think we can recognize. And that's great. What about alien life forms on this planet? What about interspecies communication here and communing, communing with the birds, you know, what's left of the dinosaurs or the cetaceans or the pachyderms or the canines and felines and ursines and, you know, octopi. There's all kinds of different lessons we can learn from aliens on this planet. And I think a lot of people are like kind of ignoring those voices and they're starting to rise up and like, like orcas tearing propellers off of boats in mass, you know, numbers and things, you know, like there's something happening. And like, I think they noticed a change when we shut down during the pandemic and they're like, oh, maybe this is our time to rise up. <laughs> just I saying. like the otter stealing surfboards. That's, that's a fun one out in Santa Cruz. It just keeps like literally stealing people's surfboards. Nice. Them if they don't get off and i'm like yeah go otter he's just like doo, 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 doo. it's great <laughs> yes so after the revolution all right where did those rails go yeah they're they're <laughs> over the rainbow so uh okay now that people i feel have a, a pretty solid introduction to the two of you as voices <laughs> i want to give people a place to start and where i want it where i hope this this starts is in a bit of exposition about this particular project and right. we've danced around it obviously all three of us are very you know motivated by this basket of ideas and you know feel a strong sort of like ethical impulse here's to, what i know yeah coming off the spirit molecule and seeing where things have gone with the whole psychedelic community, really a lot of new research about DMT and its neurogenesis and endogenous aspect that is just fascinating, right? We have this crazy compounds that are endogenous within us all over nature, and it produces these experiences, but they also seem to have like awesome qualities to them, right? Um, and we shouldn't dump in all of our science that. I don't want to spend a bunch of time looking at why we're not doing that because I think it's starting to happen. I'd like to introduce some of those things that they're looking at and then literally use it as a place to jump off from like the simple molecules within nature, having experiences and, and changing people's consciousness. And part of that is my own personal experience, but I can see it throughout society and culture. And how, what does that at tell us about consciousness in general, about ourselves and how we're making choices or not making choices or moving through the world? But then also, what does that mean about the nature of reality all the way out to the cosmos? And I know that's a huge story, but we're at that kind of critical point in time, as we were saying. But it's, it's kind of the through line is like this kind of microscopic level from these molecules, the information they carry, what they do to consciousness at a particular scale and then what that actually means within kind of the continuum of all of that. Um, so it's a big kind of cosmic story, but also hopefully a very personal and human story. One of the biggest How questions- that's a starting point? <laughs> yeah. One of the biggest <laughs> questions I have is, is, you know, like what, 
definitions of consciousness are we going to play with today? And I could list like of uh, five or six, if that if that helps, and ask y'all which which path y'all want to tra- travel down. Because I think, I mean, we talk about the panpsychic end of the spectrum a lot when we communicate about our our psychedelic experiences as as a species. But there's also like very materialist oriented neurobiological models like Dr. Huberman and Tononi and Koch are fond of, or the the functionalist version, emergent version of Dr. Bruce Damer, or like the there's there's uh this this naturalistic dualism from Dr. David Chalmers or the uh more like uh Yes, I want to talk about that. Materialist, non-materialist, mind-body dualism, and with Descartes or something like that. And wait, still one more. My one of my favorites is is the complementarity or dual aspect monism introduced by Dr. Harold Ottmanspachter. Mm. It's based on on the Jung Pauli conjecture, and like any one of these, we could talk about for like an hour. So, like, where do you want to start? Well, I want to start by expressing my frustration with the fact that so much of the scientific community seems to be committing a category error in its efforts to solve the so-called hard problem of consciousness by finding ways that the self-organization of matter somehow miraculously produces qualitative experience. This does not hold water to me and it doesn't hold water to a great many other people with considerably more investment in both empirical and phenomenological research of this subject. And I think that there is something really interesting about the, you know, the consciousness in the way that it's being explored as an, as a, a property correlated with emergence in the sense that complexity of the qualitative experience of you know, of some kind of agent is correlated with the complexity of its material organization. Now that that seems inarguable to me, but this notion that basically, like, I'm quite fond of. There's a, a paper I'll link in. It's an article in Aeon Magazine. I'll link to in the show notes by Daniel Dennett and Michael Levin right. at Tufts. I'm yeah. cognition all the way down, and they're right. not willing to push it all the way down to individual subatomic particles. Although if you talk, if you look at somebody like Seth Lloyd, this is a good place. Yeah. It's like, how do we define consciousness? I think um, because there are things within this environment or atoms that don't have to have a mind to be part of what makes a mind. Right. Right. And they're still integral in that. They're just not They're They're part of the whole on. Right. And, and that's a place there, right? Is this idea of a whole on this broader sense of self being a part of something. You're just a, a cog, but also an important part of the cog of that, you know? So my friend, Vitur Mishra, wrote this book that was published by my common mentor, Richard Doyle, The Infoboris, Recursion Across Mind, Matter, and Information. I made the cover for this book. I'm really happy with it. It's a beautiful thing. And Vidur, who is like one of the most uh, 
Rich and I were both just astonished at how advanced this guy was, both as a mind and as a meditator, as an undergraduate. Mm. It's like ridiculous that he wrote this book <laughs> in his early 20s. He's looking at it across a number of different disciplines and, you know, principally in terms of, you know, information theoretic principles. Right. That's and, where I've been going lately. That's that's where yeah. I'm going. Yep. And and just saying that, like, you know, if, if you want to talk about like somebody like Alfred North Whitehead, who you know, wants to talk about this term prehension and the notion of the interiority of like a photon, right? As there being a quantum of experience, right. just as there's a quantum of material organization. Either on or off, right? This, yeah, this so the, like, yeah, right. So there's questions like, well, there's no content inside the quote unquote mind of a photon, but it nonetheless is implicated in these self-referential mutual information relationships with its environment. And that that's how, you know, that's the quantum physics thing. And so his point is that because you get people like Greg Bateson saying, it's the difference that makes a difference when we're talking about information. It's like a difference to whom. And that piece, the to whom, has been conveniently ignored by a lot of the people that are working on information theory and also uncomfortable with the idea that you can push cognition in correlation with some kind of interior state all the way down to the most rudimentary organization of matter. And I think that that's, so, yeah, you know, that's the, so that's part of the key. And that's where Buddhism almost ties in is this idea that consciousness needs body, right? It needs to inhabit physical space, right? Because that's even the relative nature of other, right? Life or death. So that I think might be the key there. There is like, there seems to be this kind of base duality that underlies it. It doesn't have to have all these experiences. It can just be a pixel within all possibilities. And it's like the game of life, right? Where squares next to you are on and off, and you make your determination on how that, that moves. There are epigenetic factors that are you know, exogenous to the individual form of consciousness, though that affect it and interplay with it in a semi-open, semi-closed system kind of a way that's a little bit transcendental when we get down to it and requires us to shift from one mode of, of like logic to another. If we're going to speak about one, then or we can't speak about with the other the other quite as well. And it's it's like which one do you which direction do you want to focus on? So yeah. what I want to focus on and thank you for like helping us establish a kind of lexicon in this conversation. I don't know if we actually did, listeners. Well, like, it's <laughs> random. <laughs> well, not that we have to go here, but I, anytime anyone brings up randomness on the show, I have to, you know, assert that consider randomness an an epistemic property rather than an ontological property. And I think it's, it's like at least it's impossible to distinguish the difference between the two because the very nature of randomness is that you don't perceive a pattern. So there's kind of no way to conclude that something is random truly in any kind of like objective sense. And it's the same thing seems to be true of the consciousness at the very micro and macro ends of, of our experience. Well, and then if we it, take it that into and... inscrutability. Right. And then imagine this entanglement, right, uh, across all space and time and these these atoms and things moving back and forth at 
instant instantaneous, right? So this structure and motion of this is constantly shifting and changing from these minute little on-off switches, right? But has this kind of macro transcendent ability, as you said. And yeah, how we navigate that and how we interface with that makes a difference on kind of where it goes, right? But it's it's probably not random if it is all connected, so to speak, right? And what do we do with that? Like, that's the thing. It's like not to wow at all, but like, yeah. So what do we do with that? If we can, for the first time in, in human evolution, we start to know what the life force is doing, not just reacting. Um, what do we do with that? How do, which way do we go as a, um, as a species, but again, also as individuals? Because that will transform. I think that's part of this transformation is that, and this technology, whether it be AI or other things is redistributing that power, that decentralization, that, that financial, even kind of economic power, but political power, all of it through the system. I think what I meant is actually arbitrary. I meant what, like, I don't care where we start or what terms we use as long as we're having a good conversation. Fair. Well, so- we should ask our listeners, are we all having a good conversation? Are we having a good conversation so far? Because sometimes we don't know, and then sometimes we think we do. I think we are so far. I just meant, like, which direction would y'all like to talk about, like, the molecular level of endogenous consciousness, or would you like to talk about, like, the spiral dynamics epigenetic level? What I want to ask is really mundane, or at least it can start out as mundane, which is that y'all have actually been filming a series of conversations. We have. And these are two people or three people sitting in physical seats across from one another with actual, you know, equipment. I was there in the hotel room in Denver watching, you know, <laughs> this this very orderly enterprise unfold. And you've got this extraordinary list of people that you've already captured for the film. And so I just want to ask this kind of stock interviewer question, which is who have you been talking to? And how have these conversations shaped the embryogenesis of this project? And you're starting to see kind of major themes unfold. We've certainly like teased a bunch of them in this conversation, but you've got, for instance, footage with Reggie Watts, Melissa Etheridge, you know, Bruce Damer. You've got a real wide range of people that are asking really potent, you are asking potent questions about are they? Not only consciousness, science, and philosophy, but also you know the the way that culture is making sense. New cultural forms are emerging in this time. You're talking about psychedelic integration. It's a thing. But I'd love to hear you kind of just reflect on what you've yeah. shot so far and what it's bringing up for you. Sure, sure. Yeah, I mean, it's an amalgamation for sure. I think um, it kind of all kicked off during the pandemic fully when. My producer, Andrew, reached out and was like, hey, it's been a decade. What do you think about making a follow-up to the spirit molecule? People have been asking for a while, and so we started conceptualizing it. And, you know, first it's like a sequel, but wanted to, like, really focus on the DMT stuff, bringing it out to consciousness, but really still kind of heavily laid in the psychedelic space in research. I think we decided to do some kind of introductory interviews, if you will, and just start to kind of get a sense of what that was. And yeah, you mentioned Reggie and my mentor, Tommy Pallotta, who's a, who's a producer, just kind of visionary producer, has done some unusual and wonderful things. A guy named Clee Irwin, 
out in LA. And that those were our kind of first three of like, all right, here's kind of a range of folks and ideas that we want to explore. Um, and then our partner, friend, collaborator, Dennis McKenna, did the ESPD 55s. We went out there and shot that, captured interviews of, of a good number of the presenters. And that was amazing. <laughs> Go on that site. For Michael, I'll drop that in there. There were some amazing talks. Bruce was one of them. Wade Davis. Giuliani Furry, a lot of people, please, please go check that out. And we, so we captured some of those interviews in the context of the psychopharmacology um, of plants and medicines and some of that's psychoactive, but then also a whole range of stuff. And now that, that was pretty amazing in the UK. And then MAPS just had their big psychedelic science. Uh, 2023 in Denver and, you know, pitched as the largest psychedelic conference ever, 13,000 people. And so that was kind of like, all right, here's another big opportunity to kind of get our thumb on the pole, see what's happening um, in reference to what we've shot and, and kind of what's happening there at this conference. And now I think we've got a pretty good sense of maybe want, where we want to go with this. And it's not going to be as heavily grounded in psychedelics as it was last time. That's going to be kind of our jumping off point, really, to tell this bigger story of consciousness kind of through the human lens, but really that cosmic story of pure awareness, if you will. You could describe it in any number of ways. And hopefully maybe have that overview of overview of overview effect on our space in time as humans right now at this critical point in time, also the most amazing point in time with all these new technologies and, and ways of being that are, that are kind of emerging and unfolding because there's a lot of shit, but there's also a lot of beauty out there that's happening. And I think we have to kind of remind ourselves of that. And that's, that's kind of, now the focus, it's more of like, where do we want to go in the future? And what do we have around us that we've learned and explored through our psychedelic experiences, but also just life that we can kind of use as, as kind of compass now, you know, and integrating all of those things in a kind of holistic way to say, oh, that's doing this. Oh, well, why am I doing this? I don't need to do this. You know? <laughs> we can kind of dump off the shit that isn't really working or that we don't need in our kind of psychological framework. We can kind of cleanse the system and shake it off. <laughs> and so that's, that's where we want to go. Go on and on, but I guess that's the long and short of it, so to speak. And I'm sure Shanta has maybe some things to say on that as well. I think you nailed it. There's a thread up in here that I feel is important regarding this this point in time that we've reached where we we're having to like Hollywood's on strike though the the writers and the actors unions are rising up to demand that humans are considered that creatives are compensated for their work and that the production companies don't just like grift off of us forever and it's been pointed out that in previous times that this has happened in history, documentary funding has been on the rise and that there is a further need for this process to shift for people to remember that the journalistic principles that underlie our access to information, you know, it used to be the news was heavily subsidized because it ran at a loss in media channels. And so the government would like provide funding for that. I'm sure they'd still do to some point, but 
Not nearly as much as the entertainment news that passes for journalism these days. And I think that it's time for documentaries to be received by a larger audience as a source of accuracy in reporting, in fairness in, in coverage. So, yeah, we have the opportunity to host that kind of, of conversation here, I think. There's, there's, uh, I mean, we in, uh, we're going to be launching a Kickstarter soon to uh, enable some, some crowdfunding for our specific role in at this time. And we've been submitting for a lot of grants and I've funded it out of my pocket as have other people. And it's, it's a community venture. We are, we are open to other sources of funding for our longer term impact campaign as well in regarding the integration of experiences of altered states of consciousness, because we feel that there are important lessons that we can learn about the human experience here. So you just landed on the magic word that I have wanted to take the conversation in this direction already before you brought up integration. We found the rails. Yes, we we found the rails. So, I mean, you know, okay, so one thing I was kind of expecting to happen in this call was to talk about where we all just were, right? Which was the Psychedelic Science Conference in Denver. And, you know, you brought it up. It was this enormous, you know, the largest in history. And, you know, we're not the first to say by a mile that this was a very unusual confluence of what seemed like beings with very different assumptions and goals and expectations about the way that this is going to unfold culturally, socioeconomically, et cetera. That's humans. And, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right. So it's like, this is not by any means the uncontested victory of the psychedelic underground of the 1960s. Hold that and then hold this, which is that a lot of what I'm seeing offered now in these above board spaces that are formalizing themselves, you know, as the weird quote unquote turn pro. I mean, there, yes, there are a lot of places that are like, okay, trip, that's what we're offering you. But I was delighted to see that at least around me, and maybe I'm just lucky, the majority of the people that are stepping up as professionals in the psychedelic sector are stepping up as peer counsel and integration professionals. Right. And uh, the way I see it, and you know, I've been saying this for what feels like my entire adult life now, is that Confirm. we don't need we don't need to push the river. The world is already opiously psychedelic. You know, there are there are senses in which, like I know, you know, Bruce is working to launch this project for what he you know he calls solutioning, where people Genius. you know get get into they use what in in you know physics they call simulated annealing, right? Where you go noisy. And then you hammer it back into shape and you've managed to explore the space of adjacent possibility considerably faster than you could otherwise. So, you know, this is, it's true. I mean, like Silicon Valley is on the one hand, living proof of the efficacy of the use of psychedelics for innovation. On the other hand, it conveniently ignores the fact that if you innovate at too high a rate, you are innovating beyond the a window of adaptability of the systems. You know, like we can't keep up with all of this innovation. And so to something that you said at the very beginning of the conversation about like, you know, about play and about, you know, grounded humanity, 
is, you know, this question of, okay, like even factoring psychedelics completely out of the picture, which is hard when all these technologies have their roots in psychedelic Californian culture <laughs> in some respect. I mean, yeah, I mean, you get like around for a while. Right. But I mean, yes. The, At least in the Western world, right? There's yeah. a lens. There's a lens right. there. Right. Considerable number of the compounds that exist now did not and came out of garages or, you know, like but taking back, it, but taking, taking psychedelics out, like you were saying, though, we yeah. our technological development, and I'm not the only one saying this and seeing this is growth is, I guess, a way of looking at it, but it's 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 devolving or evolving faster than than us as a society and as a species kind of our systems to deal with that complexity, right? Where we're just kind of blindly throwing things in and building things. And that's uh, at this point in history, if we really are going to guide ourselves, right, we've got to, we've got to pull back and, and take a moment and, you know, evaluate those things and, and do an assessment. And yeah, I feel like y'all have made some references to, to some kind of compass or orientation here. And there's there's definitely a metaphor here, I believe, to the Odyssey. Rather, you know, like I've worked on on this this angle of of interpreting classical civilization from the the lens of the Iliad and the Odyssey for a while, and this is clearly the return home. It's quite an adventure. It takes you, you know, we are definitely going through the belly of the beast here to get home, and. Like the psychedelic Leviathan has reared its head, and so it must be confronted, and we have to integrate that shadow because we are we're shifting from the Renaissance into the industrial age squarely, and there are a lot of really important lessons to be learned. I, I recommend reading an essay called Corporate Metabolism by Paco Xander Nathan to get a perspective on the larger scheme and then applying that to to what what is clearly going on since the you know the international multi-billion dollar industry of, or is is forming around psychedelics now that we can see that there's neurogenesis leading to treatment of everything from uh, ischemic stroke recovery and Alzheimer's disease to, you know, who knows, maybe helping the blind to see and the deaf to hear is if you believe the way that science is accelerating at this point. So, I mean, definitely, I don't want to lean too heavily into this, like, long-termism, like, you know, we're going to transcend the limitations of this planet and, and you know, leave, leave the old polluted husk behind and explore the stars because, as a lot of people do experience when they go into orbit and have that overview effect, this is all we've got right now. And maybe, you know, for a good time yet, we better make it work here first. I think that's, we'll have a better chance of survival once we get off planet to, to survive yeah. if, we, if we work on, you know, improving life conditions here. Right. If we can do so, that, we'll have a better chance getting off. So full love paid to William Shatner's rant at age yep. 90 about how he's like, you know, I spent my whole life championing and evangelizing the final frontier. But then you get out there and you realize 
know, I thought I was going to experience this theophany, this motivation to go out, you know, into the enterprise on a five-year voyage. And instead, I just wanted to like weep and kiss the ground. It was you know? beneath your feet the entire time. There's no place like home. Right. And to that point, I want to go somewhere a little strange, but I know you guys not only can hack it, but probably- I want to go to Andromeda too, man. I'd love to go there. I cannot wait. So this is something I've given a lot of thought to. I got involved with the Santa Fe Institute through their interplanetary project, the Interplanetary Mm -hmm. Festival, you know, which they- I really liked that principle of, you know, throwing a kind of ecstatic gathering of people so as to fold attention- through the lens of complex system science on some of the biggest engineering and cultural and you know social problems that we have that are going to really, really come to the fore as we move into space. Very cool, right? But of course, in 2018, when I was there, my friend Mark Nelson was on the, the panel about autonomous ecological systems. And Mark, being you know one of the biospherians who lived mm. in the closed system experiment of Biosphere 2 for years, has uh, you know firsthand understanding of what happens when you try to miniaturize the complexity of the biosphere into a spacecraft and how insanely difficult it is. And it was interesting to watch over the last three years of that, you know, the three years that that festival was held, how by 2022, they skipped, you know, COVID years, but by 22, the panel on the human limits of performance in space was almost entirely critical, negative, and pessimistic about the possibility that human beings, as we understand them, are ever going to make it out there. It's pretty gruesome out there for life. Right. And so I want to take that. And if you'll indulge me, I want to turn, I want to involute this because I just listened to Andrew Gallimore on the Concrete podcast interviewed by Danny Jones. And Gallimore says, you know, a lot of people think that the aliens are out there. But, you know, he's doing these extended state DMT studies. Yes. He's he's encouraged this with Rick Strassman, and now other people around the world are doing them. He says, I'm beginning to wonder, because there's the Kardashev scale of energy utilization as, as society grows. But, of course, that's a house of cards, right? All of those cards are the tower. And that's not, you know, like I have strong doubt that we can pull this kind of thing off, frankly, but I have a lot more optimism that we can do what I forget who it was a few years ago proposed the transcension hypothesis, right? which is that that basically information density in advanced civilization leads to the civilization disappearing into its own metaverse, basically through the bedrock. Right. It's, you know, it's physical. Well, reality. that would also kind of tie into a fractal nature of life and death, right? Recreating right. itself into these on-off systems of being, right? Right. Um, and just to like sort of finish this mandala I want you to riff on, this is precisely what seems to be converging hypothesis about what's going on with the UFO phenomenon that, you know, these seem not to be to the extent that we take them seriously as, as physical objects, they seem not to be traversing physical space in the way that we understand them. And so this, this question of like, maybe we're looking in the wrong direction. Maybe we should be looking down into, you know, past the, the smallest units of analysis and, and into ourselves. That's starting to happen, right? With just the quantum research world and, and how that getting out of the idea of the physical separate world, starting to kind of come to terms with the fact that there's this whole underlying 
much different kind of way of being and kind of structure really, or information really that's there and that's playing a bigger role and probably foundational in some ways to the physical world. Two fingers up means go. So I've recalling words that I shared. Uh, the three of us were in the room with Dennis McKenna, just having a, a, a little private chat. And it reminded me talking about the DMT extended experiments that are going on at Imperial College of London keep thinking of this quote from Terence McKenna that was published in the Archaic Revival, that the human soul is so alienated from us in our present culture that we treat it as an extraterrestrial. Right. That there's there's something here that others might call the egregore or, you know, like there's something that we're, we're communing with in our own soul for lack of better words. And there's something that you know, people keep contacting me, asking me, are we mapping the DMT realm as if it's like a clear, like, like you can go from point A to point B in the hyperdimensional space and you'll always, you know, it'll be. And I would suggest that it, that that space depends on what you bring with you, how it is defined. So if you've constructed an orientation for hyperdimensional space or astral travel or, you know, DMT experience or whatever you want to call it. Uh, well, well, I don't know about that though. Like I said, hyperdimensional I, space, though, I think that could be a key underlying element, which could be quantum to our physical space. And that's the, that I think is the, like the cognitive dissonance of when we see things that might be alien. It's not one thing or another. It can it's be all of it, right? It's, it's all of it. it permutations upon the theme that are also affected by what you bring with you. It's that uncertainty yeah. principle yeah. thing that even if there is a territory there, the way you see it is prejudiced by the lens that you're bringing with you. Right. And there are some lenses that are more effective than others. And just to wrap this all up in a metaphor, there's that experience of the, uh, shoot, it's the, the Kanibo are uh, y'all familiar with this indigenous culture? They don't have a word for dragons. And this guy was trying to communicate with a blind shaman about these entities that communed with him. A giant bat was the closest that he could bring to it. And he said that they told him that they were like the, the creators of space and time and masters of the universe. And the blind oh, shaman said, he said, <laughs> they're always saying that. <laughs> And so that's a tradition. They are actually always saying that. And it's weird, but like encountered this metaphor before. And so what does that tell us? That we want to find that, that there is something there that maybe both, maybe neither. But what do we take from that? I take that it's important to banish with laughter. Don't take yourself too seriously that you, you know, it's that tools, uh, you know, metaphor about, you know, you don't shit the bed again. Like don't. Serious is only for Mondays. That's when I've moved my serious. That's my serious day. After okay. that, that's, fuck that, it, there man. you go. And then there's <laughs> no for ice cream. <laughs> no, you're right. I like it. And it's, you know, um, being able, I think it's not map the DMT space. I think where I've come to now is we need to map our human space our human psychological space, the, the, the chunks of information that are like getting clogged up 
we can find out how to move that information around and process it. But the DMT is released in our birth in many cases, if not all. And if you talk to women who didn't get a whole bunch of other anesthesia, you know, they'll produce their own in childbirth because it is a near-death experience in many cases, if not all. So there's this very crucial, like, perinatal experience, as Stanislav Grof would call it, that seems to kind of color the rest of our lives to a great extent. We can reprogram it, what have you, but and sometimes throughout history, traditionally, there have been initiations where you're encouraged to have these transcendent or mystical experiences to repattern that basic core archetype. And we can learn lessons from it. And there are also lessons that we've learned like throughout history that can guide that in those times of need. The key there though, I thought, or I picked up on there is like that we can reprogram that, right? We can. So we're not beholden to oh, that's, that's just in my mind. That's because I came from this and I got, you know, those are all stories. It's like, we can reprogram this thing we call self. It's like a, you know, modern day Jedi, but it's, it's that kind of, we now have the ability to see and understand these, these information flows and that, and that should at least give us some hope, you know, right. That we can, we can shake out these bits of, uh, whatever it is. (laughs) For what it's worth, the most powerful metaphor that I've been encountering lately while working on this project is that we get the assignment for, you know, our integration during these altered states of consciousness, but we have to do the everyday work in our everyday lives with other people who, I mean, maybe they'd be in somewhat altered states of consciousness all, you know, all throughout the day. But mostly there's a sort of baseline that people return to, you know, like that has, you know, to do with interacting with other organisms. And that's where the the real integration begins. And if we keep going to these other states of consciousness to try and figure out, you know, some lesson or reprogram things, then we're missing out on the opportunity to explore it in everyday life. And, you know, I do recognize there are also other people who are able to maintain these altered states of consciousness for long periods of time, but usually they have other people to like drive for them and, you know, like use fire and stuff like that. And Romana Maharshi found at age 16, meditating under a bridge and starving to death, getting surrounded by an entourage of acolytes who remember, help him remember to eat. Yes, exactly. That's that's what we don't want. That was what Ken Wilber was always stressing as far as shadow work and integration with one's meditation practice. And I think that, you know, if we want to land this somewhere as practical as you're, yeah, yeah, pointing as, you know, where you're pointing this, you know, I guess I want to provide one more kind of provocative question based on everything that you just said, which is that the world has at least apparently become considerably weirder, right? But again, we're talking about in the course of our lives. And I remember my grandfather never getting a PC, never opening an email address (laughs) and calling the world that I consider normal and that I take for granted as unfathomably and uncomfortably strange. And, you know, I look around at my kids and my kids are growing up in this thing that already makes me uncomfortable that they just take for granted. And so when I think about 
best case outcome that I can imagine in the next generation of humanity. It's one in which people have a comfort and fluency in the transmigration of states of consciousness. Right, right. Right. So it's not necessarily even really considering one of them baseline. It's like, right. you know, all right. of these things are- There is no normal. There's right. A like normal's gone. Normal. <laughs> you know, you look at like the Tibetan yogas of dream and sleep and the, you know, that was really the first book that I, I feel like really clicked for me in, in my own spiritual journey. Tenzin Wangyal Rinpoche's book about how all of these things are just arising within the pure light of awareness that like you are arising within pure light right, of awareness. Right. And so that seems to me to be the real ground here. It's not the waking baseline consciousness that we take for granted because that's where we grew up. But actually, when you look at that baseline consciousness, it's it's like inconceivably alien to someone living in the 1920s. And so I'd love to just prompt with that and see you know how we make sense of that in, in trialogue. I mean, I could guess put it from a personal lens, turning 50 in about a month, being a generation that didn't have technology the way we have technology and being able to see kind of developmental patterns and then where it took me, you know, falling into that, oh, there it is, the excitement, going down the big internet rabbit hole, it's going to change humanity. And, and then being completely overwhelmed by its energetic, light over stimulating human sensory awareness. And I don't think it's just that. It's also kind of the way we work or the way I was working. And I think, again, to me, that's there's like there's a direct relationship with the technology that we're developing naturally. It's not separate from us. is going to have a direct life impact on us, not just psychologically, but biologically and environmentally. And those are the kind of things, even just some basic levels of those complexities for us to think about going forward. If we can take some of those into account, it makes a big difference. And that's, I guess, what I'm trying to do in my personal life, kind of answering that kind of technological jump and seeing it in my own, you know, 50 years on the planet, but then thinking about what that means for, you know, our brothers and sisters all over the planet doing the same sort of thing at different levels of being and complexities, you know? Yeah. Take so, it into account as best as we can. I feel like, the current state of machine learning and AI use, using these neural nets and large language models and various schema, we have systems that can understand form, but not meaning. And what, what is required of us at this point to achieve cybernetic literacy is a sort of meta-systematic fluidity that we have to be able to code switch between different archetypes of meaningness. Right, right. This is the human OS interface we've been talking about, gents. I mean, I love the way you just said that, Shanta, and it is. That's, that, to me, that's the lens that we can hopefully develop as a way to kind of use it as a compass, right, going forward. Seeing how these systems in real time are influencing us, how it's like making us feel, how we're reacting to people or situations, how that asshole that cut me off in the car or whatever it might be, you know, all of those things, you know, raise the heart rate or make the dopamine go up or down. And we can now show that, man. And that's, that's amazing. So that I yeah. want to develop that. And that's kind of what we've been envisioning. And that's where we're going beyond just this film. The film is kind of a 
the calling card to this bigger project, but it ties in in a lot of different ways, but it's here is that hopefully best use of we know and what we've kind of been building for most of us our lifetimes in a lot of ways, right? And it's all the pieces are now there and we're just kind of, okay, let's put this up. Oh, there's a corner piece. There's this, right? There's our puzzle. There's the picture <laughs> because it's not just for our own self-gratification. This is, this is for hopefully to help with a little bit of a safety net for humanity going forward, you know, because there's, there's some big changes coming. There are some big changes coming. We're just, I think we're just seeing kind of the beginnings of a lot of this before it fully shakes out. So that flexibility is going to be key, but that also means like having as much of those dynamic systems available to our senses that we're aware of to, to make the best quote unquote choice going forward. Can I provoke you to make a long bet about how yeah. you see this shaking out? I don't make bets per se. They just ended that one that was 25 years about whether or not we'd seek, we'd know what consciousness is, right? That we'd be able to describe it easily. Um, I will say what I think clearly come of this is we can secure our well-being on this planet and celebrate the diversity and complexity of humanity um, and also kind of help spawn that into a planet that doesn't have the crime and it's not getting rid of all these things because they're all going to be part of it but it's like less of all the things we don't want to see actually all that energy and, and that shift can be an amazing interconnected, holistic kind of shifting, morphing, feel good, joyous experience of life, not a challenge, uphill battle, pushing a fucking boulder. But so one that, that I think is my vision of it. And that's where I, I see the long-term 30 to 50 years. It's a big time frame, but I, you know, 30 years on the low 50, I think we'll be in a much different place than we are now and a much healthier place. I think across the board. Do we need to go through the eugenics wars first? And we've already been doing that. And and I think right. it's clear that diversity- Those are part of the shadows you were talking about that have to be cleared up before this like major leap, right? There's There are those things still kind of embedded and we're seeing that, right? In the authoritarian kind of nationalist, racist stuff coming up. Those are the, I think a lot of those shadows there from that space. What about you, Shanta? As effective as it might or might not be to proclaim that we are all one, if people haven't had that experience of gnosis, once you are initiated and you've had that experience, it's like that old adage about those who know don't ask, those who ask don't know. So maybe it's not we are one. What about it is one? Because... Sure, you can use whatever pronoun you want. I'm not, you know, it's not really up to me. Like, Finally. I'll do my best to honor your your choices and and remember them. Maybe we need name tags or something. I just really help me out here. That's all. Only I'm a few warriors on your forehead. That's all I ask. I don't need a mark of the beast to trade. I'll be fine. I'll just, you know, like grow my own and, you know, like hopefully find enough clean water or like beetles to eat. You know, like. It's it'll be fine. You don't we'll want an augmented reality NFT PFP helping you like 
collection of them that an OG algorithmically no, like, out. Hear me out, because actually this is a serious question. I, this is bonus round nonsense. But <laughs> bonus round. On the other hand, the other day you brought up code switching. On the, the other day, this came up in conversation because we were talking about you know the use of AI as like a sense making augment, helping people navigate. You know, stuff we've been talking about on and off through this whole conversation, and you know something that I've been thinking about a lot over the last few years is what Harvard developmental psychologist Robert Keegan in his book, In Over Our Heads, The Mental Demands of Modern Life, points mm-hmm. to that a great deal of the neurosis of modernity is because people have been lifted out of these contexts in which there is unanimity of meaning space, right? Like you lived in a village in medieval Europe and everyone had the same religion and everyone mm-hmm. understood the same rules yeah. and the, their, their role within that rule scheme. Right. And then the modern world, you know, in part, in great part, due to the Capricorn beast of the corporation awakening on New Year's Eve of 1600, as as Paco mentions in his talk, that capitalism is is like born, and suddenly we have all of this intercontinental trade, and also mm-hmm. there's the Silk Road and all this stuff, and so people are exposed at an unprecedented rate to other ways of making sense of the world and other other ways of constructing one's identity within those. Things, of course, you know, at the time, identity construction was was not obvious the way it has become obvious in the postmodern era. But the point being that in the modern world, you're having to switch between one persona and another as you move from one social space to another. And now we're in a world that's exceedingly more complex than it was even when Keegan wrote this book. Because the internet is this portal to every possible space and every possible right. configuration of spaces where you have to somehow present simultaneously as multiple different personae because you know who's meta Mitch. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so, it's like, that's your, so the question for me is, is it gonna be the case? And I think it will. You know, we're already seeing the AR face filters my daughter is obsessed with when we're away from one another and she wants to connect with me over a video call and be a unicorn and then swap out and be a squid, <laughs> you know, and all this stuff. And it's like that's her native world space, right? And I'm so I'm thinking about like, well, what does that mature into? And to me, it seems like it matures into non-transferable token of some kind that you can collect and then appears to other people based on like an algorithmic recommendation platform that establishes relevance of this, like like your particular LinkedIn profile is going to show up for this person instead of your Instagram profile. It's going to help you present as whatever is going to connect with the people around you most effectively. Yeah. You're you're kind of describing what I've seen about like this kind of media ecosystem that we want to develop in these kind of hyperdimensional passports, right? So you're, movement through the system changes your hyperdimensional passport. You collect your metaphysical stamps along the way and you know you can leave a comment and or a thought or an idea or even a you know a location, you know, a geolocated piece and a and a and build out those information systems. And that's kind of one of the things that we like to create within our kind of like story verse or data verse, if you will. How do you take these hundreds maybe thousands of hours of footage and put it into an idea system, an ecosystem that people can navigate and have brand new iterations of the movie or movies all the time on consciousness or psychedelics or ayahuasca or autism or whatever it might be, right? 
what are these different forms of sensing the environment and how can we start showing them and visualizing them in data structures? So <laughs> I see the light bulb above your head, Shanta. You know, <laughs> we're heading towards the technological singularity and, and I get that. No, 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 we're not going towards well, it. No, 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 we're not in it. We're on the liminal phase about to enter it. We're on the, the far side of the uncanny valley, but the adventure is not done. We aren't quite there to where everyone has recognized. I think it goes beyond this going towards an event with technology merging with us. I think it's more of we're actually in this and it's happening at all I hear time. you. I hear you, but the discussion y'all are having is is about how to represent things in a symbolic system and what i'm i'm trying to represent the opposite end of that time era and point out you can tune into this persistent non-symbolic experience also that's that noticed experiment experience and that's not something i mean as much as people want to talk about like technodelics can produce this state. Mm-hmm. You can't transmit it to another person yet. We don't have that mind to mind, like through a technological portal, a way that we do in actual rooms together when humans and other animals can adopt a cohesive state of neurological alignment. And you can say that, yeah, there's this way to do it all around the world through like some neosphere like eminence, but I have yet to see that. And what about if, Michael Persinger? What about the God helmet? Like Alex Shakar wrote this. It doesn't work for everyone. What I'm saying is this is. We're just scratching the surface, but I think we're getting to a place where you can do this on a, on this a more why, reliable basis, right? Even with DNA structure. People don't have the time or the money to do it. But we do have the biology to do it. And if we align one another with some kind of structures that are life affirming and currently the implementation of this Leviathan behemoth is not life affirming. So it needs to be corrected is all I'm saying. So here we are. So here we are the finally idea at the question I had for you. What's that? I said here we are finally at the question I had for for you, Shanta, because in the at least half a dozen conversations with me and other people since the Maps conference, you brought up this piece about this article. Ibogaine is not the cure to the opioid crisis. Correct. Right. And so this is ironically like, just even as I want to assert that in theory, getting more and more fluent about swapping personae is actually loosening our grip on the symbolic through the like jnana yoga like through taking the you know symbolic technologies to the absolute extreme we realize their inefficacy or their, their inadequacy and then also we get really good we get code switching you know the chameleonic kind of thing that people like Bruce Damer exemplifies so well in being able to move from like psychedelic festivals to like Department of Defense contracting and NASA stuff. If, if it's you being know. used as an as a way to check in with who you're being and identity, and that's great. If it's to hide from who you're afraid of being, then I don't think that that is the way to go. But it can absolutely show you some trans-dimensional and very personal psychological kind of formations. So wait, are you saying that spirit taking form is hiding from itself and that, that that's, I mean, that sounds very 
Theravadan Buddhist that like you're saying, this is this is flawed. The whole enterprise is flawed from the beginning. I don't think anything's flawed. I think everything is just perfect, actually. It's actually more from that perspective of even the the trauma, you know, things, yes, can be enacted upon us. But then what we do with those, right, how we go back out into the world and how we then sense and interpret the rest of the world and how we act based off of that previous trauma or how we adjust to it. It's the act of doing um, and learning that is important, not the heightened experience or the transdimensional experience itself. Fair. Yeah. So Shanta, Ibogaine, village. Right. Please. Sorry. I, got this, I, want, I want you to talk about holding this in contrast to the way that seems like it's actually going to be performed. Okay. And then well, we can wrap, we'll wrap this up. First, before we get there, I got to say that there is a lesson from Lovecraft here of all places that... Just because you can't like succeed in conquering these ancient alien deities that want to destroy our planet doesn't mean you shouldn't try. The dignity and honor and civility and you know the life-affirming spirit of the human species as well as other aligned life forces is do what we can even if we die trying, we've at <laughs> least done so in an ethical, moral, dignified way. And so... I hope I come back as you when I die. So you're saying a little bit maybe less Odysseus and more Leonidas. Oh! <laughs> well... Way to bring it back and tie that thread up. Beautiful, baby. Talk about well, micro. Good work. Thanks. You know... It's time to replace an old metaphor of circling the wagons with aligning our our craft in formation. Again, it's that cybernetic principle. And if we're if we're going to try and allow the current Leviathan to be that orientation, I don't think it's in our best interest ultimately, maybe for the the individual, but not for the collective. And like, it's important to like, I, I was raised with the wisdom of Bucky Fuller and I think there's enough to go around if we only like will organize and, you know, so this is mutual aid is the core principle that's coming out of all of this lately. We have to figure out who the other people are in our village. Look for the helper. Find the others, baby. Find the others. And that's what we're here to do today, right? Is ask everybody out there, find the others and battle the Leviathan. I mean, that's it. Especially when it's in our own souls and we're a part of it, mm. you know, because that's the only place where we can start. Right, right. The internal battle. Well, shit. I think round one, ding, ding. And, you know, I look forward to we getting do this again in the ring with you again soon. And maybe a fourth sparring partner. That would be great. Well, and that's Liv Boiree's channel Moloch in conversation and see. So, and that's what we've always wanted to do with, with the meditation Deathmatch project is remind people we're all on the same team. You know, we can train one another by, you know, like similar to the way that like the Celtic tribes would like cattle raid their neighbors and cousins, because if you can't defend yourself against, you know, like a sporting relative or friend, then you certainly can't defend yourself against raiding enemies that have no care whether or not they spill your blood. Speaking of, I'm going to let my big pet guard dog out to make sure the neighbors don't come steal my slide. This has been fun. 
Yeah, Always great to see y'all. Thank y'all. Support the Kickstarter. Support the Kickstarter. Check out unify.studio. U-N-I-P-H-I.studio. We can do this. We can do better together. Cool. Cheers. Take care, y'all. Thanks, man. Thank you so much for listening. If you're inspired, stimulated, provoked, or curious about the stuff that came through in this episode, feel free to reach out to me directly. I am extremely online and easy to find, and I would love to hear from you. Future Fossils is a listener-supported program. If you want to back this work, I will be deeply grateful. Patreon.com slash Michael Garfield, michaelgarfield.substack.com. And lastly, if you think that you have something you could offer an emerging team, I'm really eager to make this more than just a solo project. Hit me up and let me know. Thanks and stay tuned. Next week, I'm talking with Adam Aronovich of Healing from Healing about the absurdities of psychedelic culture and bizarre trends at the intersection of spirituality and capitalism. It's a ripper, folks. Subscribe and stay in touch.